The Phillies' improbable playoff magic carpet ride has them as National League champions as they punch their ticket to the Fall Classic, while the Astros make it back-to-back trips to the World Series and sweeping the Yankees. I wonder how my upcoming winter of sleep will be. A complete recap and post-mortem is on deck. Who's got it worse after Week 7? The Packers or Buccaneers as I take a look at the winners and losers in the NFL? Clemson survives a scare at home and two more teams in the top 10 fall by the wayside. As I look at the college circuit, I'll also take a peek at what's happening on the hardwood and ice in the NBA and NHL. Plenty of sports chatter to get into. It's all coming up. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? Is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits, creeping up on all the ghosts, goblins, and ghouls of Halloween as we're just a week away. But I'll have some early tricks and maybe a few treats as we take a walk through the sports neighborhood. As this is the J Reels podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. Glad to have you hop on board as we take this trip to see what is happening over the past few days and what lies ahead in the sports universe. And before I get to the NFL, obviously, quite a bit to break down there, especially with the Packers and Buccaneers. Talk about two teams that we thought were going to be top-heavy in the NFC, how they are just fading into oblivion, although there's still nine more games to go. So really, now that I think about it, 10 more games, because of course it's a 17-game season. So we'll chew on that later on. Also, what's happening in college football, we got the NBA and NHL, which NBA is almost a week in, and there's already some interesting storylines there. And the NHL, you have a couple of injuries that we have to zero in on. One on a defending Stanley Cup champion avalanche, and another on the regular season leading of last year, Florida Panthers. So... All that to come, but right now, the dust has settled. We've already completed the championship series, and I'm sure baseball wasn't too happy about that. I'm sure they were looking for long series in both leagues. 
considering the Padres and Phillies were just about even, maybe a slight edge to Philadelphia, and then the Astros and Yankees reconvening once again, hoping for another long series, at least six games, maybe even seven for that matter. And both of those series have concluded, although you had some drama there in the eighth inning in Philadelphia there yesterday with the Bryce Harper home run, but not a lot of drama in the other series between the Astros and Yankees. So I'm sure the suits at Fox had to look at this and say, all right, Houston and Philadelphia is going to be our World Series. And I understand it may not be sexy. I get it that it may not look great on the marquee. Yes, it would have been nice if you had Yankees-Dodgers or even Astros-Dodgers for that matter, but that is not the case. You have a hot wildcard team going up against a team that has not lost in the 106 regular season win Astros. And as we break this all down to set us up for a World Series, which will now start Friday, And that was the original start time for this World Series. They weren't going to move it up in case of sweeps or short series as we saw in the National League. So you're going to have to wait till the end of the week to watch Game 1 between Justin Verlander and Zach Wheeler to see who is going to be crowned as World Series champions of 2022. I'll start off with the National League as we cover the Phillies and Padres. And I must say, I am... Pretty surprised that the Phillies did what they did at home. I thought the Padres would at least win one. And as it was, we saw they just got swept out of Philadelphia and back to the West Coast. And when we look back on this series, I'm sure the game on Saturday night is going to be the one that's going to stick in the Padres and their fans' craw because that's the game that they needed. And knowing that the Phillies were flying high even after Friday night, which I guess a lot of people in Philadelphia are going to call it the Gene Segura game where he had in one inning, he had the error, but then also had the big hit, also made a diving defensive stop. Just a cauldron of emotions in the post game, if you saw at the end of game number three, but it was a ho-hum 4-2 victory. And even with Joe Musgrove on the rope stand the first inning after giving up the home run to Kyle Schwarber and then walking the next two guys before Bryce Harper hit into a double play, it was pretty much just a matter-of-fact 4-2 quiet game although the crowd was raucous and typical Philadelphia fashion which there you're not surprised but like I mentioned the game on Saturday night is going to be the one that the Padres are going to think long and hard and probably have some sleepless nights because when you get out of the gate in the first inning up four nothing and even though you're going with Mike Clevenger who has been a far cry from what he was in Cleveland and not to say that he was a Cy Young Award candidate but when he pitched as a member of the Indians at the time, was a much better pitcher, a lot more reliable, and I understand he went through Tommy John, and I'm sure he's still recovering from that, but when you stake the 4-0 lead, when you give up a crooked number in the bottom of the first in a three spot, you knew that it was going to be tough sledding for this Padre team, and it was just a matter of time before the Phillies turned it on, and sure enough, Reese Hoskins, a guy that has had Just a weird postseason altogether. He had the biggest hit in the series against the Braves when he hit the three-run homer off of Spencer Strider with the spike bat there at home plate. But other than that, he hasn't really hit worth a lick until he got there to game number four where he hit two home runs in the game and set the stage for a big fifth inning where they were able to come back where they were down 6-4. His home run tied it there at six up. Then you want to add in Bryce Harper who doubled in Rio Muto followed by Castellanos getting in the 
Next run to make it 8-6. And from that point on, it was smooth sailing for the Phillies as they had the deciding game there yesterday in the rain down in Philadelphia with the early afternoon start, which was refreshing to see because as we know over the last few years, baseball in the afternoon, I'm talking about not even years, decades when you think about it, you do have those four o'clock starts, but they don't really feel like an afternoon game. And here it was a two o'clock start because of the travel where game number six would have been today if there was a game six. But considering you had to fly out to the West Coast, they wanted the game early enough to where if there was going to be even extra innings for that matter, that they could at least leave it a decent hour out of Philadelphia to get back to the West Coast as opposed to getting in at three, four in the morning. All that being moot because of the heroics by the NLCS MVP and the one Bryce Harper. Like I said, even in the rain yesterday, they were able to get up there in a situation where they were down 3-2 in the bottom of the eighth, and then Harper goes opposite field into the Philadelphia night, and the eruption by the crowd in Philadelphia, who has not seen a World Series game since 2009, and Yankee fans remember that very vividly, and then, of course, not winning a World Series since the year before that in 2008. Well, they can rejoice as their team goes back to the World Series for the first time since the 09 season. And the Padres, what could you say? It was a big year for them. They slayed the Dragons by the Dodgers in the previous round while they were just pounded by them over the last couple of years, including the Division Series in 2020. And yes, they did get themselves off the map by beating the Mets there a couple of weeks ago, as we've chronicled, obviously, in the past. And can you say they ran out of gas? You could pretty much say that to this point only because they weren't able to get that extra game that they needed. And really the one game. When I meant extra game, as I talked about in the podcast Thursday, could the Padres somehow, some way, were able to pull out two games? And obviously, they didn't even get one. And the crowd, as I mentioned, the atmosphere was electric. This is a long time coming. And this is one of those carpet rides or magic carpet rides as I like to say that it goes down in that city that town as one of those unlikely improbable runs because when we think back to the beginning of this postseason especially in the National League you had three teams that won over 100 games three teams that were favored well above what the bottom rung of the NL had to offer, even the Cardinals for that matter, and what they did in the second half of the year, even with Albert Pujols, even with Yadier Molina. But we all know that if you were a betting man at the start of this postseason, I'm sure a lot of people put the Dodgers and what they did in the regular season for them to be able to get to a World Series and win. Even the Braves, although winning last year, but for them to have an opportunity to go back-to-back considering what they did from June 1st on, And then the Mets, even though they collapsed in Atlanta there in the next-to-last regular season series, but knowing that they had 101 wins and all of what they had to go through this year, just a lot of good moments and was all for naught because we saw them spit the bit there in the wildcard round. But with all that being said, when you have a sixth seed, and even though they won 88 games and they have a very good lineup and two good starting pitchers in the bullpen – has come into their own here in October. Where in the beginning of the year, it was probably their Achilles heel. And we know defensively they're not great. But here they are as the hot team now raising the National League pennant to the top of the flagpole 
Who would have thought that the Phillies, although they do have the talent, but I'm sure a lot of people thought that they were not going to be long for this postseason, and here they are as the last team standing in the National League. And give them credit. Just a phenomenal, unbelievable job by everybody. From the manager, Rob Thompson, who had to come in pretty much, what, a third into the season after they fired Joe Girardi. And even with the late swoon in the regular season when they lost tough series, whether it was against the Braves when they split their two games at home, or the four games, I should say, where they won the first two but then lost the back two, got swept in Chicago against the Cubs. They lost two out of three down in Atlanta in the middle of September. And it doesn't matter. This is the prototypical team that got hot in October and granted that they didn't have to face the Dodgers after beating the Braves and had those tough opponents you could only face the teams that are in front of you and they did what they had to do and as for the Padres it's going to be interesting because this is an offseason that they could hang their hat on what took place this year granted that they didn't have their shortstop for the whole year not only for injury but also for suspension and that's one that's going to hang over this organization a little bit Because he's going to probably miss the first month as I try to break down off the top of my head how many games does he have left to cover as far as going into next year. Because the postseason games do count for his suspension overall. And that was the 80 games, of course. So even if he misses up until late April or even early May, but that's going to hang over the organization as to how he fits back into this team knowing that they were just a few wins away from making it to the World Series. Then also, Juan Soto not having a good regular season, and although he did break out a bit here against the Phillies, but you have to wonder what is the mindset of this organization and A.J. Preller, the GM of the team, knowing that they still have two years left on the contract for Juan Soto before he gets the big bucks. But you have to wonder whether or not is this team going to be all in on trying to bring in not only two $300 million players on the team, but most likely a third in Soto, and that's going to have to play in their mind, although they do have time. But you know there's going to be some early rumblings on whether or not he's a good fit there, whether Soto wants to stay in San Diego, whether he wants to come back to the East Coast, does San Diego want to give him the big bucks because they already have two $300 million players on the team. It's going to be fascinating. Now again, it's still way early in the game, But it's something that you're going to have to monitor slowly but surely to see whether or not that this is going to be a marriage between the former Washington National player as far as him being part of the fabric of Southern California to go along with Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis on this team for years to come. To go back to the Phillies for a second, this could be their time. And the reason why I say that is because this team to me has the similar feel of the 2019 Washington National Team. Because if you remember, they won that wild card game in just weird fashion with the situation with Milwaukee and how Trent Grisham, who let the ball go underneath them and all the way to the wall, and they won that in the bottom of the eighth inning off of Josh Hader. They beat the Dodgers the way they did with Soto and I believe Anthony Rendon hitting home runs in a game five against Clayton Kershaw. And then you had what took place in the championship series by them sweeping the Cardinals, and then we know what happened in the World Series, winning four road games to a title. Does that mean this is going to be the same path or trajectory for the Phillies? Absolutely not, but they have a lot of gas in their tank. 
They're playing with a lot of confidence, a lot of fire, and they got that crowd in that building, which is going to help, especially in those middle three games when the Astros visit the City of Brotherly Love sometime next week. And then there's also Bryce Harper, where now this is his time as well. We saw what he did as a member of the Phillies last year by winning an MVP. We saw the whole career unfold in front of us, going back to when he was a 16-year-old on the cover of Sports Illustrated, hitting 500-foot home runs, and everything that happened in Washington over those years, including him leaving the Nationals to go to Philadelphia right up the turnpike, and that aforementioned team in 2019 winning a World Series with him not being on it. So all of that, and then now with his now fourth year in Philadelphia, just completed, or really third year, yes, 20, 21, 22, third year of a $330 million contract to where he's already won an MVP in this uniform and now is on the cusp of winning a title and getting an opportunity to play in his first World Series and you know he's relishing this big time. And as of right now, this team is a live dog. Does that mean they're going to win the whole thing? I'm going to reserve that until Thursday's podcast when we'll do a World Series preview. But for right now, congratulations to the Phillies and what they've done. Tremendous job here so far this postseason. And they are four wins away from winning their first title in 14 years. As we take a look at the ALCS and one of the big storylines, especially once we got into the division series, obviously the Dodgers were number one. I thought the Astros were number two and then the Yankees number three. The reason why the Astros were number two, 106 wins in the regular season, as I mentioned. Not only that, but since they were in a World Series last year and lost in six games to the Braves two years prior to that, as I mentioned, that whole series with the Nationals, how they couldn't even win a home game. And then we know what happened in 2017, the whole cheating scandal, how that unfolded and how it rocked baseball. And for them to get back to a World Series and win, I thought would be just not only apropos, but would be poetic justice for this organization who has now been to a World Series. Think about this. In this era of free agency, and as I've documented before on this podcast, Garrett Cole going to New York and signing with the Yankees. George Springer going north of the border to sign with the Blue Jays. Carlos Correa signing with the Twins. Not having Michael Brantley, a key contributor to their offense and a steady presence in their lineup, out with a shoulder injury. They do not skip a beat this team continues to win this team continues to just pile on the playoff wins and appearances and league championship series appearances six in a row and now four world series since 2017 a remarkable job there is no way to slice it and they seem to get better as the years go on now that they're here they have to win a world series there is no ifs ands, buts, or maybe it's about it. They have to seal the deal. But we'll talk more about that on Thursday's podcast. But for right now, this Astro team has not lost in the postseason. I'm sure you saw the graphic. Only two other teams have been able to, during the wild card round, of course. We're not going back to the beginning of time. But when we look at the 2007 Rockies who were able to do that, that year where they swept through the whole postseason until they got to the World Series where they got swept by the Red Sox. And then the 2014 Royals did the same as well, sweeping the postseason up until they got to San Francisco. We know what happened there. Madison Bumgarner pitching like no other has in a World Series setting. 
But now we have the Astros here and what they did to the Yankees over the course of these four games. It just goes to show you how good they are because not only did they continue their dominance against the Yankees this year, and when you really think about it, overall, and I understand you can't put the regular season with the postseason. They are two separate animals. But they had two walk-offs against them in the ninth inning. The second one, I think, was in the ninth inning too, so it didn't go into extras. But if it wasn't for those walk-offs, and I understand we can't erase them, they would have swept the Yankees the entire season. They were 5-2 and two against them, and in the one game off the top of my head, I believe that a 3 nothing lead in the ninth inning in the Sunday game, and then remember, they had a 6-3 lead in the ninth. That's when Aaron Hicks, I believe, took Ryan Presley deep to tie the game, and then they won. I believe Aaron Judge had the walk-off hit in the Thursday night of the four-game set in the Bronx back in June. But they just dominated this Yankee team pretty much from the start of the season throughout. And as we saw here, they could beat you in so many ways. They could beat you in the close game as we saw in games one and two. They could beat you in a game where they took Garrett Cole, granted Harrison Bader, who is looking like Joe DiMaggio here in this postseason at the plate, but... With the miscommunication there in the outfield with Aaron Judge, he drops the fly ball to where Chaz McCormick takes Garrett Cole deep and just barely deep as it crept over the short porch and right for a 2-0 lead. And then in the fifth inning, or I should say in the sixth inning, that's where it all kind of came unglued, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And the Astros won comfortably 5-0. And even when they were trailing yesterday, 3-0, Jeremy Pena brings them right back to make it 3 Three, and then they took a 4-3 lead and it was a seesaw type game throughout until the Yankee defense imploded there in the 7th where Gleyber Torres with an E4 throwing it pretty much to left field and then the floodgates open to where Jordan Alvarez gets a hit to tie the game and then Alex Bregman gets the game winning hit at 6-5 so it doesn't matter it could be 3-2-4-2-5-0 or 6-5 the Astros know how to win these games and it just showed their medal Not only their DNA over the last five, six years, even with the new manager and Dusty Baker, but also the players, it doesn't matter. You could bring in Chaz McCormick, you could bring in Jeremy Pena, you could say goodbye to those aforementioned high-priced free agents, doesn't matter. You could plug me in there at second base. And this is with Jose Altuve, who started this postseason, what, 0 for 23. And we know how big Altuve's been an influence in that locker room on that team pretty much since he's been there. So it doesn't matter. The Astros find ways to win. And they just took the Yankees to the back of the woodshed. They were no match for them. And I didn't see this coming. Even at 2-love when the series came back to the Bronx, yes, there was a part of me that thought the Yankees would win two games because you would think with Garrett Cole and with Nestor Cortez that they'd be able to at least maybe keep the game close or you would hope that they would win those games because as a Yankee fan, you don't want them to keep it close. You want them to win those games. So I gave them the benefit of the doubt to think that they would go ahead and even if they didn't come out victorious from their own standpoint, but the team would win those games because those are their two best pitchers. And as it was, I can't fault Garrett Cole. That was a cheap Yankee Stadium home run. Yes, he did not deliver. When you're paying a guy $36 million a year and $324 million for nine years, let's face it, that contract has been a bust to this point. Yes, has he put up good numbers in that uniform? 
Absolutely. Has he pitched in good starts throughout the course of those years? You would hope so by him making that much money. But he's going to be remembered by that wild card game in Fenway last year. And yes, he did come through in a game four where they absolutely needed him. But again, it was against the Guardians and their offense, as we all know, is anemic. But in a big game, as it was for game three, he needed to take his team home. Seven innings, three hits, ten strikeouts, one run tops, and you would have been satisfied with that effort. But then for whatever godly reason or god-awful reason that the manager, Aaron Boone, decided with bases loaded, and I believe it was one out off the top of my head, I don't recall. It could have been no outs, but bases loaded for sure in the top of the sixth inning. Actually, it was one out. And for him to pull Garrett Cole at 95 pitches, he is your horse. You pay him that much money, and I understand this is probably not all on Aaron Boone. I'm sure the collaborative effort from the powers that be, Brian Cashman, Randy Levine, etc., probably thought that, oh, third time around the lineup, up, oh, bases loaded, we're down already two runs as it is. We're going to have to go to the analytics. We're going to have to go to the sabermetrics to see what's the best matchup here in order for us to get out of this inning. So what happened? They pull Cole. You bring in Luis Trevino. For what reason, I don't know. And the next thing you know, it went from 2 nothing to 5 nothing. Good night, the lights. And why that's the case is beyond me. You couldn't bring in one of your better relievers to come in there in that spot knowing that this is your season right here? You're going to bring in Lou Trevino? No offense to the guy. But that is one pitcher as a Yankee fan you do not want to see on the mound. And as you saw, the game got out of hand from that point on. And then Nestor Cortez gets you into the third inning and that's what the Yankees and their fans did not expect. They wanted Cortez to go minimum five. You would only hope six. And then bridge it to your relievers there to close out the game, to show some respectability on your side and some pride to at least push it to a game five. But obviously that was not the case. And the Yankees go home meekly into the offseason. And an offseason that's going to be highly scrutinized to say the least. And let us count the ways and let us break it down for you before we go on to football and other things as we wrap up this baseball segment because this is one that I'm sure the Yankee fan has to be just angry, frustrated, and even borderline disgusted to know that another season, down the tubes, 51-18, and 61-23, and 23, comparisons to the 98 Yankees. And here it is, losing again at the hands of their bitter playoff rivals, the Houston Astros. I'm going to start this breakdown of the Yankees here in this offseason from the top all the way down because if Hal Steinbrenner can't see what has gone on with this organization, and no, I'm not going to say that he has to act like his dad or he has to be bombastic. No, 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 no. We know that he is a far cry from what his papa once did when he was ruling the roost of the Bronx Zoo and everything that took place there on 161st and River Avenue when it came to his Yankee team. But Hal Steinbrenner has to realize that this team, starting from the GM, okay, because we can bring in all the good players that we want and we could sign the high-priced free agents and do anything imaginable that we can to make this team a championship product. But he has to look at the GM first and I get it. Brian Cashman is part of the family. I get it that he's been a fixture here for almost 25 years. 
And he has been with the organization that and even longer. I believe going back to the mid-90s. But as far as being the GM since 98, he has patrolled what goes on, the inner workings, the transactions, everything that has to do with trying to procure talent, re-sign talent, etc. And you almost get the idea that if you're a Hal Steinbrenner, you have to really think long and hard. Knowing that Brian Cashman, and I believe his contract is probably either upright this very second, or maybe it lasts through to the end of the month uh, on October 31st, as we've seen happen in the past when it came to their managers, in particular Joe Torre. If you recall where his contract, I believe in the 2001 season, because the World Series and how that all unfolded with 9-11, how after the clock struck 12, and that was the famous Jeter homer against the Diamondbacks in Game 4, how those contracts pretty much last to the end of the month. And you really have to think long and hard if you're a Hal Steinbrenner if you want to bring Brian Cashman back. I think he's probably going to do so. I would think it's probably going to be at least two years. Please, if he's bringing Aaron Boone back before last season to a four-year contract extension, I'm sure it's going to be somewhere along the lines even for the GM. But if it was my team, again, I would have to think long and hard before I bring a contract to the face of Brian Cashman with a pen in hand to say, please sign on the dotted line. That's just me. And let's also throw this little wrinkle in there, which let me just put it out there for the baseball universe. And I probably don't want to do this because I'm going to get to this at the back end as far as my upcoming winter and how I'll sleep. But when we look at who is out there, And there is a particular fixture, a particular person that used to be the face of this franchise for many years. And this name is probably going to loom large throughout this offseason to possibly give the keys to the franchise as VP of baseball operations to a guy that was the face of the franchise. A one Derek Sanderson Jeter. And if that were to happen, does Donnie Baseball come with him? Remember, he severed his ties with the Marlins back before the season started. And then the Marlins, of course, have also parted ways with their former manager. Now, this isn't anything that I've read. This isn't anything that's been rumbling by any stretch. But again, Your GM right now is not on the hot seat. I won't go as far as saying that. But I would think it's not automatic that he comes back. My gut will tell me because of everything that I mentioned. Him being a part of the family. Him being with this organization for the last two and a half decades. That he probably will come back. But if I'm Hal Steinbrenner, Derek Jeter's name is out there. And I understand that that's a huge risk. Because... When he was with the Marlins, he was more CEO. And yes, he did overlook the baseball operations, but he was a lot more to it than just that. And for him to come back as the, just a guy that's going to overlook and oversee the whole franchise, that could be a little dicey because I get it. You can't compare the Marlin franchise, their payroll to the Yankees. A thousand percent. But is that something that they want to roll the dice to bring back their prized possession? Especially over the last... 30 years to know that if Derek Jeter were to be the guy to lead this franchise back to the promised land, I'm sure every Yankee fan would exalt 
understandably and rightfully so. But that is a name that's going to be out there if you're a Yankee fan, if you're any beat writer. I'm sure the internet's probably taking with it and running with it as we speak. But that's one name that you know is going to be thrown around, especially if Brian Cashman is not going to be brought back as the GM of this team. Now, if I'm the GM of this team, the manager, he's not going to go anywhere. But guess what? Even with three more years, and why did they sign this man for this contract? I get it. Let's call it as we see it. Aaron Boone is a puppet. They're going to tell him what to do. He's getting paid, but he's not getting paid amongst the ranks of four, five, six, seven million dollars a year. He's getting paid what in about the two to three million dollar range, which isn't chump change by any stretch. But again, as I mentioned earlier, the whole collaborative effort, the whole analytics department, everything that entails with baseball in 2022, Aaron Boone is not pushing the button on who's getting pinch hit for, on who's getting pulled out of a game, on how long is this guy going to start, etc. So I understand you can't put it all on him, although you look back on what happened this Saturday afternoon, and that's just puzzling to me. But again, I'm sure that was from upstairs more than it was from the dugout. Now, I don't know which manager I would go after. As it is, a lot of these old managers are resurfacing Bruce Bochy now is your new manager in Texas as they want to look for his direction and his championship DNA to try to infuse into a Ranger lineup that obviously has a bunch of high-profile and high-priced guys. They need pitching in the worst way, but who knows? With Bochy at the helm, maybe that will bring the likes of who knows, maybe even Jacob DeGrom for that matter, to go from New York to Texas to be the anchor of that staff. But do the Yankees go in that route? And who is out there? Mike Shosha, off the top of my head, or you want to go Joe Madden? Those are the only two guys that have a ring on their finger and have at least a pedigree that if you were Hal Steinbrenner or the new GM or even Brian Cashman, for that matter, that you would bring into the locker room to be a part of a team that could finally get to a World Series that they have not seen in 13 years. But even with three years left on Boone's deal... And you're the Yankees, so you have money to burn, I would cut bait. Why did they sign him to four years again? I, I know I'm belaboring this point. Why they did that in the first place is beyond me, but I get it. They didn't want to bring in a guy that was going to take over the room. They want to bring in a guy that's going to be a puppet. Let's face it. So that's issue number one out of the way. As far as the players are concerned... Josh Donaldson, why do they trade for this guy is beyond me. I would get him out on the rails in a heartbeat. And I understand he has one more year left and probably somewhere in the vicinity of 23 to $25 million. But guess what? Bye-bye. I would try to get rid of him as fast as possible. Bring in one of the young guys. Groom them at third base. I don't know. You could put Peraza there at short. I don't know if you want to put Cabrera there at third. Obviously, you're going to have DJ LeMahieu back. He's a guy that you could plug in at third and away you go and you could bring in Peraza. I don't know about Isaiah kind of Falefa as him being the long-term guy and he came over in that trade, I believe, with Donaldson where you had Gary Sanchez and the other third baseman off the top of my head. I can't think of his name right now. Gio Urshela, thank you. Get shipped to Minnesota. I would get Donaldson out of here. Gleyber Torres, he's another guy. I'm sorry, I would get out of here too. He has two more years before he's a free agent. This was a guy that, think about this, three years ago was on the fast track to being not only a top 10 player in the sport, but an annual MVP candidate. That's how good he was. 
And yes, he has a lot of Robinson Cano in him, lackadaisical and laissez-faire, very nonchalant. I understand that. But for what he put forth in those 2018, 2019 seasons, and I don't know what happened in 2020. We know that in 2021, he couldn't play shortstop to save his life, so he went back to second base. And yes, he did have his moments this year, but when you look at the overall big picture, 24 homers, 76 RBIs, he did nothing in this postseason. It makes you think, maybe we could bring back a big pitcher. Maybe we could bring back a pitcher and maybe another infielder or position player. Why not? The Yankees seem to be afraid of these guys until it's too late, a la Gary Sanchez. Check these receipts. More than two years ago, I said, trade Gary Sanchez. He's going to be a liability, especially behind the plate. And his production offensively was slipping. Granted that whenever he's in the batter's box, he's a runner in scoring position. I get it. But guess what? You could have gotten more than a bag of balls or even Josh Donaldson for that matter if you would have made that trade two years ago. I would think, again, going back to the whole history, I would look at Gleyber Torres and see what I could do to shop him around because for right this moment, you may not get a ton for him, but guess what? Whether it be next year or if you lose him the year after that, you're not going to sign him to a megawatt deal even if he does happen to turn his offensive prowess around. But he's a guy that if you ask me, I would look to try to get a top starter and maybe even a young position player for him and that's it. Then you still have to deal with Aaron Hicks. You got to... Three more years and $30 million with that deal, which I'm sure Brian Cashman, ooh, you're cringing. And if you're Hal Steinbrenner, again, this is where you would go in a different direction as far as who's going to patrol all of your transactions moving forward after this year. And then, just to wrap this all up and put it in a bow, I haven't even talked about Aaron Judge, who ironically was the last at bat as he had the season weighing on his back with two outs in the ninth inning, down by one run, considering that everything that had transpired throughout this whole year, the record-setting performance, 62 home runs, trying to get that 60-second home run down the stretch, and I'm sure coming into the postseason, even though he can exhale and have that piano off his back, but now was a bigger piano, knowing that he had to deliver. And here it was. The season coming down to his at-bat last night to see if he could tie the game, give one last hope for a Yankee team that was on life support. And he grounded out to the pitcher and the Yankee season went up in smoke. And as I said, for weeks on end, and this was not a narrative anywhere, at least not from what I saw or heard, despite the regular season that he had, he had to deliver here in October. That's not to say he had to single-handedly win games by himself like he did in the regular season, no. But as we saw, whether it was in the Cleveland series or most definitely here in the series against the Astros, he came up small. And he's still going to get a big payday. Now, is he going to get it here from the Yankees or is he going to get it from somewhere else? But despite the fact he's going to get probably starting at 350 and up, But this postseason, I'm sure GMs and owners, despite the fact that he's box office, that he's a megastar, that I'm sure any team would love to have. But they're going to look at what happened here in these two series and say, hmm, is he really worth all that money? That's going to be the big question. And whether or not the Yankees sign him, and they're going to have no choice but to put up a blank check to whomever out there, whether it's San Francisco, whether it's the Cubs, dare I even say the Mets, They're going to have to do whatever it takes 
because if that guy does not get signed and will not be in pinstripes or donning the Yankee jersey during the press conference when he signs that big deal, then they're going to burn that stadium to the ground. And with that being said, people, as I segue off to other things, because Lord knows I could harp on this for as long as I possibly can, but thank goodness for the 13th straight October, and I know it's going to come to an end at some point, hopefully not as long as I'm alive, and I hope to be alive for at least another 40 years, but thank you, baseball gods, with the Yankees not winning a World Series, it's another winter that I could sleep in peace. Now let's turn our attention to the NFL. Let me lace up the cleats, put on the helmet and shoulder pads, as well as college football, as obviously we'll do double duty there. Let's cut right to it. The winners and losers here for a lackluster Week 7 when we think about it, when we look at these games and the schedule, but some interesting storylines to say the least. Winner number one are the Seattle Seahawks, and who would have thought that once Russell Wilson goes to Denver and Geno Smith is your quarterback, who's been fairly well, Let's call it as we see it. He's actually played pretty well and I'm sure above anybody's expectations either in Seattle or outside of that. But with their win yesterday and with Kenneth Walker going for 23, 168 and two TDs on the ground that the Seahawks, who would have thought that when we look at the NFC West that they would be in contention? And I understand we still have a ways to go with this NFL season. Obviously, Seattle could all of a sudden fall off a cliff. But as for right this second, knowing that they went south to SoFi to play the Chargers and for them to put up that type of performance, and we know the Chargers, they are up and down, in and out, and for whatever the reason in that building, they have not played well at times. Yes, they could beat the Denvers and the Las Vegas Raiders of the world, but Jacksonville went in there and we saw what happened with them back in week three, and now for Seattle to go in there to beat them the way they did, kudos, and Seattle looks like they could be a team not going to say to be reckoned with, but they're going to stick around here a little while as far as the NFC playoff picture as well as the NFC West is concerned because the Cardinals are eh. The Rams, they're on a bye, so maybe they needed this week off, but let's see if they could retool. And then the Niners yesterday coming off of a loss with Kansas City, which we'll touch on. The Seahawks, I give them my winner number one. Winner number two, and I've been on my loser's side a couple of times this year, and I'll give them some praise. That's going to go to the Baltimore Ravens. They finally were able to hold on to a double-digit lead at home. They didn't squander it, even though the Browns tried to make a comeback there where they made it 23-20 with about nine minutes to go under Kareem Hunt where he had that touchdown, but the Ravens were able to hold off the Browns, and the Browns, they look like they're going to be out to sea this year, and no surprise, their number was eight and a half in Vegas, and I picked them as an under- And it looks like that's going to be one of my big winners of this year when it comes to that. But give it up, the Ravens, who did not have a good performance there by Lamar Jackson. Very paltry numbers. What was he, 9 for 16 for 100 and some odd yards. No touchdowns. Obviously, it was all Gus Edwards. If I said Gus Johnson, my apologies. Gus Edwards, who had come back from a knee injury going back to last year. And he was one of their big cogs in their offense as far as their ground game goes. And with J.K. Dobbins on the... Shelf there for another four to six weeks because he had arthroscopic knee surgery. That was a big plus for them. And the Ravens were able to hold off the Browns and win a home game. And I believe they had lost five in a row at home dating back to last year. So kudos to the Ravens as they keep pace really with the Bengals keeping pace with them because they have the early season tiebreaker against the Bengals as they're both atop the AFC North. 
my losers of the week, and I talked about these teams in the past, and I'm going to lump them together only because we're going to have to really see who's in a worse spot this year, the Packers or the Buccaneers moving forward. The Packers go to Washington on the road, and the Commanders, we all know, not a good team. And with Carson Wentz out and Taylor Heineke in, and Heineke, he's that guy, small in stature, but has a big heart, plays big, and he rose to the occasion yet again. And not to say we got to put the statue outside of FedEx Field or start fitting him for the gold jacket by any stretch of the imagination, but Heineke was able to make plays, he was able to move the chains as we've seen so far this early part of the year. Carson Wentz has not been a fan favorite to say the least in the nation's capital, among other things down there. Obviously, the owner being the biggest one of them. But for Heineke to be able to sustain drives and to make plays, it was big enough for them to win. They had a sizable lead for them. They were up nine going into the, or I should say up six going into the fourth quarter, and they were able to extend it to nine before the Packers came back, but they fell short. And Green Bay with a trip to Buffalo this coming week and a 3-5 and five record almost halfway in, it does make you think that they're not going to be long for this season at all. And I picked them to go to the Super Bowl. And with all of their troubles, we could talk about their wide receiving core, we could talk about their defense underachieving and all that. But I think when I look at them, and I'll get to the Buccaneers in a second, The Packers, they're going to be, forget about the division. Unless the Vikings collapse, the Vikings have a three and a half game lead and they're coming off of a bye. The division is out. But maybe they could be that sixth or seventh seed in the NFC unless they just totally implode. And when we take a look at the Packers schedule from here on out, the trip to Buffalo, that's not going to be a day at the beach to say the least, as we all know. Then after that, they do have the Lions that they have to go to in Detroit and Detroit's due to win a game obviously they have not played well and they lost to the Cowboys there yesterday Dak Prescott his first game back eh nothing much to write home about but they are the Lions and one of these days they're going to win a game and that's going to be at home so who knows you can see Green Bay stubbing their toe there then they host the Cowboys they host the Titans who are playing well right now then they got to go to Philadelphia and at the end of the year They host the Rams. Who knows what the Rams are going to look like then. They go to Miami, which now has a better feel of their team with Tua back in the mix. And even though after the first quarter they did nothing in the final three quarters and the Steelers defense were dropping interceptions left and right, and who knows, maybe the Steelers could have pulled out that game. But with Tua and their starting quarterback in the fold, who knows what the Dolphins will be there come Christmas Day. And then they play the Vikings at home before the Lions is all said and done. Not an easy schedule if you're a Packer fan or the Packers as we look at a 3-4 and four record at this very moment. And as far as the Buccaneers, you talk about inexplicable. All right, Taylor Heineke, we've seen what he's done when he's in the lineup, especially when he's in a pinch-hitting, quote-unquote, type of situation. But the Panthers, and we know their defense is good, but their offense, P.J. Walker, they had to dismissed their coach Matt Rule because he wasn't cutting it anymore and for them to not only win 21-3 but to win convincingly and Tampa Bay is just a mess at this moment their only saving grace unlike the Packers is that they're tied for first place in the 
NFC South with the Atlanta Falcons and then you have the Saints and Panthers just a game behind them for first place. And which is scary because they actually have a tiebreaker advantage over the Buccaneers as we currently speak. And with no help coming along the way and even with Mike Evans dropping... I mean, listen, how could you drop that pass if you're Mike Evans? And that's just a microcosm of what the Buccaneers are going through here in this 2022 season. But even with all that being said and all the -the off-the-field stuff with Tom Brady, with Giselle, the marriage, etc. and not getting a season on track, offense is stuck in mud, defense who started off like gangbusters are now whimpering like lambs. I I don't know what else to say. But even with all that being said, they still control their own destiny. Whereas the Packers right now, if I even had to look at the records, I'm sure they're right there at 7 or 8 or on the cusp. And we know that they're going to be dangerous even as a seed at the bottom of the NFC playoff picture. But as much as you don't like what you see for either one of these two teams, sadly, the Packers are worse. The Buccaneers are not too far behind because to lose 21-3, put up three points against the Panthers? That's not Julius Peppers, Brenson Buckner. Uh, That's not the Panthers of the past. Or even Thomas Davis, Luke Keekley. No, those guys are long gone. And for them to just put up a measly field goal against the Panthers is inexcusable. But to think, if you look at the two teams, the Packers may have it worse only because of their schedule. As we go through the docket yesterday, we'll go back to Thursday with Arizona beating New Orleans. And I know the spat on the sidelines between Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury, that's going to make the rounds as far as the talk shows, the hot take shows, etc., Listen, it's the Cardinals. I'm not going to make any bones or to me it's much ado about nothing. I'm just sure it was a matter of disagreement between the quarterback and head coach. And other than that, it was an entertaining game. Obviously a lot of points where the Cardinals prevailed. So be it. Nothing else to really get into there. As far as the games yesterday, the Giants won in Jacksonville. And if you're a Jaguar fan... We understand it's Doug Peterson, so you know he's going to be bold. He's always going to take those chances. He's always going to push the envelope. And with the game at 17-13, deep in his territory with, what was it, about 11 minutes to go, kick the field goal there. Don't get cute. I understand he's trying to put the game away or trying to make a statement there to see if they could get into the end zone to put the game away. But as we saw, that was not the case. And then the Giants, what did they do? They came back down the field, took the lead, and ended up winning the game when it was all said and done, 23-17, Giants are now 6-1, and one. what more could you say? And Jacksonville, this is what happens, even with a coach that's won a Super Bowl, and with a team that's still growing, but you cannot try to be smarter than the opposition, or try to feel as if your team is entrenched with confidence to know that you can make it. I get it, it's 4th and 1. Understood. And they're trying to build an identity there. But this is where you have to just take the points. You're leading. So it's a touchdown and we don't know how the rest of the game is going to play out. Will the Giants get tight? Will Daniel Jones try to throw the ball into a tight window? You just gave them life there by them getting stopped. And of course the Giants taking it down the field to where they end up winning the game. 
So that's one thing you don't like if you're Jacksonville or a fan of the Jaguars to know that just take the points, keep it simple, let's not try to overthink it or try to outcraft the giant defense. Uh-uh. You know, it's not as if you have Earl Campbell there in the backfield where you could just pound him right up the gut there for two yards and extend the drive and kill the clock. The Jets suffered a tough break to keep it with the New York teams. Brees Hall, who had a 62-yard touchdown run and no Russell Wilson in the game as he did not play due to a hamstring, but it looks like he's going to be out for the rest of this year with an ACL injury, and he was a guy that was exciting, a guy on a Jet team that you could look forward to watching on a weekly basis. He was exciting with the ball. I saw him against the Steelers and how he performed there a few weeks ago, and for him not to be in the lineup, man, that's going to be... Literally, and no pun intended, a tough break for a Jet team that is finding their way. They're winning the games that they're supposed to win. And here they are at 5-2 and two with a 16-9 win in Denver and now have the Patriots coming into their building, which is going to be highly anticipated. Because this is going to be the first time that the Jets could look at the Patriots going back to the Rex Ryan years to where they could possibly have a chance to beat a Patriot team, I'm not going to say soundly, and they're not even favored. I believe their Patriots are favored by one going into the game, but not having Brees Hall there is going to hurt from here on out. Kansas City on the road in San Francisco with Christian McCaffrey, the trade there last week, which I didn't really talk about on social media. They gave up a lot, a two, a three, a four, a lot of those middle round picks where teams are going to favor to try to see if they can steal a sleeper or a guy that kind of gets under the radar where we all have to see how that's going to play out and that's not for till you know down the road until April but for McCaffrey to be part of the Niner team real quick obviously it's an upgrade you got to wonder about his health though because if he's not going to be healthy then what's the point and he did talk about it being a weird week obviously with the trade going to a team that has playoff and championship aspirations but of course He wasn't going to take a brunt of the carries yesterday. He wasn't going to be a focal point in the offense as he just got there midweek. But for McCaffrey, he is going to be an upgrade. A thousand percent. And he only had eight carries in the game yesterday. He did have a couple of catches out of the backfield. But this is going to be a gradual process for a guy that when he is healthy, he's one of the top running backs in the sport, no doubt. But once again, health is going to be a big giant question mark for him moving forward. Now, luckily for the Niners, he doesn't have to be the focal point of the offense because they do have weapons, obviously, with George Kittle, of course, with Debo Samuel. So you know they're going to mix and match and maybe even decoy Christian McCaffrey. But again, you're going to have to wonder whether or not he's going to withstand the rest of the season and into January for a deep playoff Super Bowl run. But as it was yesterday, with the way the game unfolded, the Chiefs were able to take over there in the second half. Niners held... Close there in the first half, but Mahomes was typical Mahomes, 25 for 34, 423 yards, three TDs. He did throw a pick. And then the Chief defense did a number on Garoppolo, sacking him for five times as the Chiefs went going away, rebounding from the loss to Buffalo the week before, 44-23 out by the bay or south of that in Santa Clara. Tennessee, for all intents and purposes, have taken over the division. They swept the Colts and winning in Tennessee yesterday, 19-10. Matt Ryan kind of went back to his old self there where he was throwing just terrible passes, terrible interceptions after the great game he had in Jacksonville the week before. 
And Derrick Henry, who had 128 rushing yards. We know that Tennessee is not a sexy team. They're a steady team. Most definitely not spectacular, but it looks like they're going to take the division by the reins and be your AFC South champion. Pretty much what they did to the Colts here over the last few weeks cemented that. And Tennessee, whether we like it or not, they're going to be part of the discussion in the AFC as far as hosting a playoff game and who knows above that. That remains to be seen, but Tennessee wins a whole hum 19-10 game in the division against the Colts. The Bengals get their offense on track. Atlanta, they can't seem to get their offense on track. When you have Marcus Mariota doing so little in these games, how can you expect the Falcons to be taken seriously? But when we look at the other side, the Bengals, a huge performance by Joe Burrow as he threw for 481 yards, three touchdowns, 34 for 42 in the air, You also had Jamar Chase back at it again with a couple of touchdown catches as the Bengals go running away with a 35-17 performance in Cincinnati. So they righted the ship and looks like if they could get that connection in sync, we know the Bengals are going to be dangerous down the road. But Atlanta, again, even with them being tied for first place and they already trail in the division because they did lose to the Buccaneers early on this season. But... Nobody thinks the Falcons are going to be a team at the end of the year are going to be up for the division or even part of the NFC playoff mix. So you can forget about that. I touched on briefly with Dak and Dallas, 24-6. Again, a ho-hum type of game. Prescott was pedestrian, 19 for 25. You know everything was going to be soft. They weren't going to try to stretch the field. Not that the Cowboys ever do, but too many turnovers there by the Lions led to the Cowboys winning in Dallas yesterday. What else do we have to look at here? Yeah, we talked about Baltimore. Vegas, Josh Jacobs, he is an underrated running back in this league. 143 yards on the ground. They beat the Texans. In fact, the Texans had a 24-20 lead in the fourth quarter. But that's when the Raiders took over and they prevailed. Houston, despite their record, at least they play for Lovey Smith. And the quarterback is decent. I'm sure there are a lot of other teams that would like to have that quarterback on the team. And I'm not trying to make Davis Mills out to be Johnny Unitas. I'm not going to get crazy there, but even when you look at his final numbers, and not to say that they're going to be popping out of your eyes, but he was 28 for 41 with 300 yards, had a couple of touchdowns, he did have an interception there, but, you know, this wasn't all in mop-up duty. You know, it wasn't as if the Raiders had a big lead and he had a lot of those yards in the fourth quarter as they're trying to come back. So, give it up for him and the Texans, but again, they're going to have a long year, they're 1-4-1 as we know, and the Raiders trying to save face there out in the AFC West. And then you have Pittsburgh and and Miami. I talked a little bit about the secondary dropping interceptions left and right. And the Steelers had a chance. Their offense is abysmal. But when they had to move the ball, when they absolutely had to move the ball, they did. Kenny Pickett converted on a big fourth down on the final drive where he got the ball to Fryermuth with no timeouts. And even as they're moving the ball down the field and they're making some plays, it looked like they had a shot there at the end where Pickett had a lot of real estate in front of him. And if you heard Chris Collinsworth, he talked about that Pickett had about 20 yards of space where he probably could have ran and run out of bounds, even if he didn't make it to the first down marker, but at least he could have stopped the clock. And what did he do at that point? Just like he did two drives prior where he tried to fit the ball in a small window, it got intercepted. That's where the rookie came to rise above where we've seen it time after time after time with these rookies as they are trying to make plays They're not trying to think about, oh, let me get the yards and run out of bounds. They're trying to see if they can get the ball in the end zone. They're trying to play a hero ball there. 
and you can't fault him. This is how rookie quarterbacks perform. Not everybody can be Dan Marino in his first year. Not everybody can be Ben Roethlisberger in his first year. And you look back on his 2004 season. You're going to have to deal with the growing pains, Steeler fans. And that's what you saw with the warts and all. You do see promise. It's funny, as I've watched him over the last few weeks, he reminds me, the way he throws the ball and his release, he reminds me of Drew Brees. That's what I see. I'm not trying to say he is Drew Brees. I'm not trying to say that he's going to be Drew Brees. But the way he releases the ball in the pocket, he doesn't tiptoe like Brees does over the offensive and defensive linemen. But for some reason, what I've seen so far, just the way he gets rid of the ball, especially over the middle, and he has some good zip when he throws those outs, he just reminds me the way he throws the ball, Drew Brees. But Miami gets their win there. And Miami, as I mentioned earlier, the steel of defense was stout. They gave up 13 points in the first quarter, only three the rest of the way. But when your offense has three and outs left and right littered throughout the field, and even though they had their opportunities, as we saw there on a couple of drives at the end, the one interception that was picked off by Holland on the second to last drive, or two drives prior to the final drive, which was intercepted in the end zone. But that's what you're going to get from the Steelers. And they have to go to Philadelphia next week. So this tough stretch of schedule here, even though they beat the Buccaneers, which isn't saying much right about now, considering what they did in Carolina. But that's pretty much your week seven in the NFL. And you have a great one tonight, Chicago and New England. So I'm sure everybody's going to be up and at them. And there's going to be nothing else to watch because you don't have a game six in the NLCS or a game five in the ALCS. So pretty much, unless you're going to tune to the NBA or NHL, that's what you have with the NFL. And quickly with college football, you had another couple of teams drop out of the top 10 over the weekend as it becomes as topsy-turvy as can be. Now the top five are going to be safe, maybe top six or seven, but it's usually the bottom rung of the top 10 that seems to, from one week to the next, go through the revolving door where the other team walks in and the other team walks out. And you had UCLA lose to Oregon. Oregon put up a big effort there offensively to where they had a 28-point second quarter. And UCLA under Chip Kelly was unbeaten at 6-0 to that point. But the Ducks took care of them. And UCLA, you could pretty much say bye-bye to any college football playoff hopes. And even Ole Miss, they had a 17-3 early against LSU. And then LSU was able to turn it on and they ran away with it in the second half. To win 45-20. And LSU, we talked about it under Brian Kelly, the former Notre Dame coach. He was unable to hang with Tennessee a few weeks prior to that. And not to say that this was a statement game because Ole Miss isn't that team in the SEC that you're going to look at and say, wow, that was a big win. It's not Alabama. Obviously, it's not Tennessee or even Georgia for that matter. So for LSU, at least for this week, at least they could hang their head on this game by beating a top 10 ranked team. And Ole Miss, so the Rebels will be another team that is out and looking in. And then Clemson, although they're going to be at five, but boy, did they have the sweat against Syracuse and give it up to Syracuse. I have a very good friend that I go way back with that his son plays at Syracuse. He's actually a slash wide receiver, punt returner, special teams guy, Trevor Pena. I'll give him a little shine there. He had a few receptions, I believe, in the game, but... Even with the turnovers that Clemson had, and they even pulled the starting quarterback, DJ Uagalele, who I always butcher the name, and they had to bring in the backup, Kate Klubnik, down 14 points in the first half, and even to overcome all the turnovers, I believe four in total, but they scored 17 points in the fourth quarter. They were able to find their way and pull out a 27 
21 victory, and it looked like Syracuse was giving them a good fight down in Death Valley. This wasn't in the former Carrier Dome. I believe they changed the name to that. It's always going to be the Carrier Dome people. I don't care what they call it now. But Syracuse, the Orange Men hung tough, and I'm sure they're kicking themselves knowing that they really would have put themselves on the map, and I believe they were 14th in the nation going in. They definitely would have made it to the top 10, and Clemson probably would have either been at the bottom of the top 10 or even out if they would have lost. But who knows? Because when we take a look at the rankings here, the top four are going to be set, we all know, with Georgia, Ohio State, Tennessee, and Michigan. And then Clemson, they are fifth as of right this second. So even with the skin of their teeth win the other day, and Alabama follows suit there at number six, TCU, Oregon now moves into the top ten at eight, Oklahoma State who bounced back at nine, and then USC tied with Wake Forest at ten. Round out your top 10, and we'll talk about the upcoming schedule this week. I believe Tennessee and Georgia is the following week. That's going to be the highlight game by bar none, but that's in two weeks. But college football, again, a lot of that bottom top 10 goes out, and a couple move in. Let's see how this plays out here in the weeks to come. Now, as I put on my high tops, just to kind of round this out into shape with the NBA and NHL, is the sky falling in LA or Philadelphia right now? And no, not for the Clippers, but for the Lakers. As both of those teams, the Sixers and Lakers are 0-3. Quickly with the Lakers, I know a lot's been said now recently about Russell Westbrook having to come off the bench. And he was even benched in the final minutes of the game yesterday against Portland. Darvin Ham, the coach, says, I don't care if any of these players are get caught in their feelings. We're trying to win games here. I'm sure that's not sitting well with Russell Westbrook. But this is something that you're going to have to deal with here. And this Laker team, out of the gate now, 0-3. Not playing well. We talked about it on Thursday, how LeBron said we don't have 40% three-point shooters here in this locker room and took a dig at his team. Is it true? 100%. But I'm sure the rest of the team didn't like that. And who knows what's going to happen here in the season in LA outside of the Clippers because it may not be pretty if you're a Laker fan. And the same goes for the Sixers. With Doc Rivers is the Doc River watch as he starts walking down the plank in Philadelphia. You know that the fan base is not going to tolerate that. And I get it. They're under the radar right now with the Phillies in the World Series and the Eagles coming off of a bye at 6-0 with the Steelers coming into that building this week with the Battle of Pennsylvania. I'm sure the Sixers is on nobody's radar down in Philadelphia. But if they don't shape up, I'm sure Doc Rivers is going to be shipped out. So that's something we'll have to pay attention to as far as the Pelicans real quick I know you had Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram out with injuries yesterday Ingram bumped his head where I believe he's in concussion protocol and even Zion Williamson had a hard fall after a dunk who knows what the status of both of those players are as they suffered their first loss yesterday against Utah obviously New Orleans is going to be a big team on a lot of people's radar this year with a young team up and coming with Zion healthy So to have him out, hopefully it's not for any extended period of time. But that's something just to keep in mind. And how about the Blazers? 3-0 out of the gate. And I looked at them as a team as an under. And of course, you still have 79 more games to go. But right now they're putting their two middle fingers up at Jay Reels because I looked at them as an under. Other than Damian Lillard and maybe Anthony Simons is a team that's not going to have a lot of scoring or continuity, even with the coach uh, Chauncey Billups there. But right now, out of the gate 3-0 and with the Jazz 3-0, and who would have thought? And I also picked them as an under at 24.5 considering that they traded both Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert 
in the offseason to bring back a plethora of picks and Will Hardy, the former Celtic assistant, now the coach in Utah, paying off dividends big time to the point where they went to Minnesota the other day, I believe on Friday, where Rudy Gobert, first time against his former team, and how did that fare out for the former Utah Jazz Center? 38 minutes, 4 for 10, did have 23 rebounds, 10 offensive, but did not win the game, had 9 points total, and Utah stuck it to Gobert, the former teammate, in Minnesota, 132-26, so they're off to a resounding undefeated start. Again, two middle fingers up at yours truly. Other than that, I'll go through more of the NBA on Thursday. And then as far as the NHL goes, you have some injuries there with the defending Stanley Cup champion, Avalanche, Gabriel Landeskog, who had arthroscopic knee surgery. is going to be out three months. So that's a big blow to a Colorado Avalanche team who's looking to repeat. And then Aaron Ekblad, the defenseman there, one of their key contributors to their team, he's going to be out for a long period of time on injured reserve as he's, I believe, also dealing with a knee injury or maybe a groin. Let me just double check that. Yes, he's actually having issues with a groin. So if that's going to be something where he's going to be out for any extended period of time, that's going to be a big blow for the Panthers as they try to get themselves back on track after a big regular season last year. And we know what happened to them in the postseason. And just a quick look there with the standings. I'll talk more about the NBA and NHL in the middle of the week where we'll have more time to really sink our teeth into that. NHL going into its second week where the NBA is completing their first week starting tomorrow. Really today when you think about it as the season began a week ago tomorrow. But the Bruins are flying high out of the gate, 5-1. and one. Penguins, well, let's see the Lightning beat the Islanders the other day and they're back at 500 where on Thursday they were 1-3 and, and off to a slow start in last place in the Atlantic. So they seem to be doing well. And that's what you pretty much have here so far. Avalanche at 3-2-1. We'll talk more about this later on in the week as we get deeper into the month, closer to Halloween, closer to November, Thanksgiving, etc. As I continue to share my thoughts, opinions, and analysis on everything that's happening in the world of sports here on the J Reels Podcast. So with that being said, that will conclude it. Another episode in the books. As always, thank you so much for stopping by, for listening to what it is I have to say about what goes on. As I mentioned, in the world of sports, if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review. I greatly appreciate it. Also, if you want to hit me up with any questions or comments, you could do so on any of my social media accounts or the following email address, the Podcast at gmail.com or on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook at the J Reels Podcast and on Twitter, jreels one just a number. And then if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, A-T is in Tom, R-E-O-N is in Nancy, slash the J Reels Podcast. Whatever you want to put forth, we'll go 100% to this endeavor, to the production, the upkeep of the website, the equipment, etc. As I continue to babble about what happens in the toy department of life known as sports. Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about people, the passion The fire always burns inside. The energy, talking about sports pretty much since birth. My critiques, praise, analysis, thoughts, opinions on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. 
from the South Bronx, the Southeast, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless, everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.